This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. Lord and Heavenly Father, in whom is the fullness of light and wisdom, enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and give us grace to receive your word with reverence and humility, without which no one can understand your truth. For Christ's sake. Amen. Well, our message this morning is Hebrews chapter 12. So if you want to know what God says to us as a congregation this morning, the answer is Hebrews 12. And the key to the chapter is found in the first verse, which begins like this. Let us run the race with perseverance that has been marked out for us. The word for race is literally the word agon. A-G-O-N, from which we would get our word agony. And so the writer is saying, let's run the contest, let's run the obstacle course with perseverance. And this morning as I was coming, I noticed I was passing literally dozens and dozens of people who've been running this morning in a half marathon. I've also been recording recently the international athletics competition from South Korea, and my concentration span is so short nowadays that I play the whole thing on fast forward, and if any race is more than 200 metres long, I just speed it up, and so they're just basically crossing the line, and the two hours turns into about 10 or 15 minutes. Now, the problem with that is that when it comes to this Christian race, that God has put his people in, you just don't have any buttons to speed things up or to slow things down. And we may like every now and again to speed up what's happening. And we may wish that we could prolong and hold on to what's happening. But there are no buttons in the Christian race for speeding up or slowing down. And so God has put us into the reality of time. And that's why the writer says, you've got to learn to run the race with endurance and with perseverance. Now, the passage, if you'd like to turn it up, is on page 1193. I'm just giving you a few introductory thoughts here. And the second introductory thought is that he's no longer talking about them. You remember in chapter 11, there were those people of the Old Testament, and this is what they did. And it was like this for them. And now chapter 12, I'm speaking, says the writer, to you. I'm talking about what we need to do. And chapter 12 becomes very direct and personal. Now, before we think about chapter 12, I want to give you some thoughts on the Christian race. In fact, I want to give you two essential clues to the Christian race. In case you're visiting today or you're not familiar with the whole subject of Christianity, here are two clues to the Christian race. First of all, the Christian race is very different from an Olympic-type race because the contestants in the Christian race are not chosen for their giftedness or their ability or because they're good. Selection is not based in the Christian race on fitness for the race. It's based on God's kindness. It's based on God's choice. It's God who brings to us the message of Jesus Christ that he is the son of God and that he died on the cross and he opened the door into the family of God and one day into the glory of God. And it's God who brings that message to us. And it's God who gives us the ability to respond to the message. And when we respond to the news of Christ and when we bow to him and when we trust him, we have a brand new life and we're in the race. So the very 
greatest mistake you could make this morning is to think that I'm going to give you from Hebrews 12 a little pep talk as if we're all, just by being here in the Christian race, there may be some here this morning, you're not in the Christian race yet because you've not yet come to the point of putting your faith in Christ and having the life and being placed in the race. And I wouldn't want you to think that I'm giving you a little beat up this morning about how we've all got to go home and try harder. The key is to get into the race by putting your faith in Christ. That's why the writer has spent 10 chapters telling us about Jesus and his work on the cross so that we'll know what he's done and we can trust what he's done before we then do any running of our own. I got an email this week from a young man and he wrote to say to me, I realize I'm not in the Christian life. I realize I haven't got it. That was a very great breakthrough on his part. A real piece of humility to be able to write and say, I don't have the Christian life. I'm still spiritually dead. Now, the second clue to the Christian race is that it's not a competition. We're not in the Christian race, those of us who belong to Christ by his grace. We're not in the race to defeat other people. We're in the race to finish. And if you've ever read the book called Pilgrim's Progress, you know that it's not about finishing first. It's about finishing It's about finishing well. And we need God's grace to help us finish well because there's a lot of stupidities inside us and there's a lot of invitations to evil and indulgence outside us and there's a devil who's um, rubbing his hands and mixing his own plots around us and we need the grace of God to help us not only into the race but on in the race and eventually to finish the race. That's why Paul says very wonderfully in Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion. So please don't fall into the trap this morning. I'm just saying this by way of introduction of thinking that we're here for a little bit of a pep talk and that I'm going to give you all some tips on how to basically run the race. Um, We're here at the sort of spiritual gym and it's nice to sort of just set aside one hour to come here as if it's our spiritual gym. Not at all. Not at all. We need to get chapters 1 to 10 clear. Put our faith in Christ. Then we're in the race. And uh, this is a Christian race. It's not the human race. Now, there are four brief encouragements in chapter 12 to help you run the race. And I hope these things will be like an energy drink or an energy bar and that each one will help you to run the race because that's the purpose. This chapter is not designed to discourage you. It's designed to make you glad to be in the race and glad to keep going. And if at the end of these few minutes you come to that conclusion, I think we've got the chapter right. So first of the encouragements in verses 1 to 4 is that sacrifices are worth it. Sacrifices are worth it. Verse 1, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Who are the witnesses? Who are the witnesses? We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And the answer is that it's all those people in Hebrews 11. 
It's that long list of people who God saved and carried to the end. They were not very great. They were not very impressive, but God saved them and carried them to the end. And they are witnesses to his faithfulness. They are testifying that he is good and able. These are not witnesses to us. That is, they're not sitting in the grandstand watching us run our race. What a depressing experience if they were in the grandstand watching me run my race. But no, no, no. They are testifying. They are witnesses to God's faithfulness, helping them complete the race who will help you complete the race. And we have this great cloud of people who began and finished, and they say to us, God is faithful. He saw us through. He will see you through. That's the encouragement. So therefore, verse 1, throw off the things that keep you from running. You must think now this morning, friends, of the things that hinder your Christian race, the things that take away your zeal and your joy. This, I'm not talking about your busyness. We're all busy. Busyness does not rob us of joy. You can be very busy and very joyful. I'm thinking of those things that rob us of joy and zeal, the things that make us spiritually weak and sluggish. Now, I know the areas in my life that do that, and I guess you know the areas in your life. There are certain things which crop up in our lives which actually take away the joy of our Christian race. And the good news and the bad news at the same time is that these things have got to be thrown off every day. We must take heart from the fact that there is nobody here this morning who successfully threw away their sins, and now they're free of sins. Those people are terribly depressing, aren't they? You meet them at morning tea just occasionally and they give the impression that their Christian life is just A5+. And there may be good phases, but actually what we're being told here is that the person who runs the race, trusting Christ, following Christ, is going to have to, on a daily basis, throw away the sins that keep getting in the way. And it's almost like an athlete who's tempted. I must have my television under my arm. I must have my laptop under my arm. I must have my iPhone in my back pocket. There's nothing wrong with a television and a laptop and an iPhone or whatever. But you just don't run well with those things. So work out those things that prevent you from running well and throw them away for the race. And if you want some help, verse 2 You'll find some help in Jesus. Not only is he the one who forgives us for our failures and he hangs on to us despite our stubbornness, but he is our example because he looked at the cross, we read in verse 2, and he scorned it. He despised it. He knew that it would be shameful, personally, physically, spiritually, in every way, shameful, and he despised it. And he despised it because he was looking forward to the joy that was coming when he would be seated beside the Father. As one commentator says, as he was nailed to the cross, he thought about sitting at the Father's right hand, and that's where he is. That time of suffering was short, terrible, terrible. And now he's at the Father's right hand, and he's there to help us in our struggles. And that's why the writer says in verse 3, Therefore consider him who endured such opposition, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart in your struggle you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Look to him for help. 
So God has put us in the race. The question is not, will we begin the race if we're Christians? That's the non-Christian question. Will I begin? Will I put my faith in Christ? The question for the Christian is, am I going to finish? And when we think about so many who have gone to the end and run for decades by the grace of God, and especially as we think about Jesus, who has arrived and is seated at the right hand of the Father, the sacrifices are worth it. Second, this morning, circumstances are under control, verses 5 to 17. The writer starts to talk about God disciplining his children. Why does he start to talk about disciplining his children? Friends, I hope you don't read the Bible and just think that this writer has ADD and he's just come up with a random topic. And I hope you don't read this chapter and think, It's like an encyclopedia. We've just gone from one topic to something completely different. I hope you'll read the section and you'll say to yourself, why does he say this? Why does he say God disciplines you in the middle of a letter written to people who may be tempted to turn their back and go back to the Jewish faith? You've got to think about this. And the obvious reason you see is that these people who are thinking about turning back are misreading their circumstances. They've begun to follow Jesus. That's costly. It's much more costly to follow Jesus than to be a member of any other faith. You've got to trust promises. You don't get to touch and taste and smell and feel all the time. A lot of it is walking by the promises. And there is opposition. There was for Jesus, verse 3, and there will be for keen Christians. And all of this has come on these Christians, you see, and they are wondering if God is punishing them if God is angry with them. And the writer is turning around and saying, no, 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 God is disciplining you because he loves you. He's working on you to shape you and to make you into the person who will trust and obey and rejoice and keep going and survive and get to the end of what is really quite a short race. And so we're told in verse 6 that God disciplines those he loves Now, we all get to watch other people raise their children and people get to watch us raise our children. And we are concerned, aren't we, when we or others indulge children to the point where it's all treats and no boundaries. And you wonder really how these children are going to cope with all treats and no boundaries. And the answer, very simply, is that a person who raises their children with all treats and no boundaries doesn't really love their children, says the Bible. Because in the end, you're more likely to be loving yourself to do that. It's easier to do that, isn't it? But to exercise discipline, to come down with the boundaries and to stand with your standards and to keep your children in the way of faithfulness is costly but it's loving and it's constructive and it's purposeful and it's wonderful. And that's why the writer says there's no father who doesn't discipline their children who's a good father. And if the heavenly father is disciplining you, it's because he loves you. In fact, if there's no discipline, verse 8, you might start to ask yourself the question whether you've really got a heavenly father. If God never brings you low, if he never corrects you, rebukes you, disciplines you, trains you, you you need to wonder, don't you, have I got a heavenly father? Have I just been neglected and am I adrift in the world? Well, verse 10, human fathers did their best. 
and uh, many of us know they made mistakes, and we may not respect their mistakes, but we respect them generally, how much more should we respect the perfect Heavenly Father? And verse 11, it's not fun, it's not easy to be disciplined, it's painful, but it is productive, and it brings forth the fruit of progress and maturity and change. So, verse 12 to 13, don't be tricked into thinking that the way God is working your circumstances is some kind of carelessness on his part, as though he's just walked away from you and said, I'm fed up. That's impossible. Chapter 13, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So lock that into your brain. And don't imagine that the circumstances that God is putting you through at the moment are sadistic, as though his character has suddenly changed and he's become faulty. That's impossible. He's perfect, loving, wise, powerful. So we have to lock it into our brain that God loves us. He's said it and he's proved it. And now he's like that father who's watching their daughter play netball or their son play football, and he's on the sidelines and he's watching the child, and the child is being knocked around quite a bit, and he's getting quite a few discouragements and a few whacks and a few falls, but the father knows that actually the whole process is good and is allowing certain things to take place which will strengthen and build. But if something serious happens, then the father will run in. And that's the way the Heavenly Father looks after us. So friends, I want to say to you again, if you interpret your circumstances on the basis that he's being careless, you've just swallowed a lie. And if you interpret your circumstances on the basis that he's being sadistic, you've swallowed another lie. But if you interpret your circumstances on the basis that he is a loving Heavenly Father interested in every detail, that's the truth of the word. And so we need to make sure we don't despise what's happening to us and we don't get despondent, but we discern. We say, this is happening to me at the moment and I've got a heavenly father behind and he works all the circumstances. The question is not, am I going to get it all explained to me? The question is, how will I respond given those facts? Well, if God is at work for our righteousness, the writer goes on to say from verses 13 to 17, you need to be wise as well. You need to choose a good road for your feet. You're never going to make much progress if you choose a dumb road. Verse 14, seek peace with others because that's going to bless your walk with Christ as well. The horizontal and the vertical, they go together. And verse 14, go hard for holiness because in the end, holiness and happiness are much linked together. Beware, verse 15, the root of sin that takes hold and starts to strangle you. But verse 16, also beware that insane ability that we have to exchange our eternal future for some kind of cheap present. What an insane thing that is, and yet we're capable of that, aren't we? We're that stupid. We need to be very careful that we don't give away an eternity for the present. So this is very practical information. When we are embattled in the Christian life or we're feeling very needy and very empty, it's easy to misread things. And that's why we need to lock into our head, loving Father, not abandoned, not neglected, loving Father. 
And when sin is coming at us very strong, we need to say to ourselves, holiness is the best road. Work at the holiness. Don't act as though nothing matters. Don't imagine that sin is going to satisfy in the long term or be helpful in the long term. Work at the holiness. C.S. Lewis says in one of his letters on the subject of temptation, it's the devil's lie that the only escape is through yielding. But the temptation will go, and what seemed yesterday to be impossible will today be utterly insipid and tedious. Isn't that a wonderful comment on temptation? One day it seems impossible, doesn't it? The next day it seems pretty boring. Well, we love those days where sin seems boring. We don't know what to do often in the days where sin seems impossible. But here is the great wisdom of this writer telling us, keep going as best you can on the road of holiness because God is at work as a loving father. The third help in the race, verses 18 to 24, is the privileges have begun. Here is a section which needs very careful handling because he says in verse 18, you have not come to a mountain with fire, gloom, storm, terrifying words, which sounds like Mount Sinai, but you have come, verse 22, to Mount Zion and to the angels and to God and to Jesus. What's he talking about? What is he talking about? What do you make of that if I say to you this morning, you've not come to Mount Sinai, you've come to Mount Zion? How can he talk like that, especially in chapter 11, when he said that none of those people who are trusting God's promises have actually arrived? And now he says in chapter 12, you've come to Mount Zion. And then in chapter 13, he says in verse 14, we haven't yet come to the city. But here in chapter 12, he says, you've come to Mount Zion. What's he talking about? Have we come? Have we not come? Now, I think the answer to the question, I hope you do ask yourself these questions every now and again. Do you feel like you've come to Mount Zion this morning? Hope you don't feel like you've come to Mount Sinai. There's no sort of lightning and thunder and gloom and doom, I trust. But do you really feel like you've come to Mount Zion? He says you've come to Mount Zion. How are we going to interpret this? I think the best answer is what he's been saying through the letter of Hebrews, which is, for example, chapter 4, you've come to the throne of grace. You've now spiritually got to the point, because of your faith in Christ, where you can step up to God's fellowship. You can come into his presence. You can speak to him and receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. In other words, listen very carefully to this. This is a very important sentence I'm about to say. You've spiritually arrived. You've not yet physically arrived. Just as Paul will say in Colossians 3, you've been raised with Christ. And you say to yourself, I've not been raised with Christ. Yes, you have, says Paul. You've been spiritually raised. You've not yet been physically raised. One day you'll be physically raised, but you've been spiritually raised. And here the writer says, you've come spiritually to Mount Zion. You can now speak to God, as it were, at his very throne. You can go home this morning, you can kneel down beside your bed, and you're in the very presence of God spiritually. One day you'll be in the very presence of God physically. And that's why the writer is basically saying to those who are running the Christian race, take heart, you're halfway home. You're spiritually home. 
You're not yet physically home. You're no longer at Mount Sinai, which was all about separation and distance. You're now at Mount Zion, which is about access and availability, and therefore rejoice because you're not separated from God. Christ has bridged the gulf. And in the Christian life, which is a very testing race, here is some wonderful encouragement that your conversion means access. And therefore, don't throw away your Christian life because you have received so much forgiveness and fellowship and access, and there is a future in front of you. Don't throw it away. So there are the first three things. The sacrifices are worth it. The circumstances are under control. The privileges have begun. And the fourth thing is that the values of Christ are unshakable. He says in these last verses, 25 to 29, everything that is created is going to be shaken, but the kingdom is unshakable. And therefore, you live in the creation, but when you come to faith in Christ, you live in the kingdom. The kingdom intersects the creation, and you're there in the intersection between the creation and the kingdom. And because you belong to the kingdom, you're on very solid ground. When God spoke at Mount Sinai, everything trembled. When God speaks in the future, everything will dissolve. And the person who's standing on the rock of the kingdom will find that they are absolutely safe and secure. And therefore, to walk away from the king and to lose your security and your stability is an absolute insanity because the clock is rotating quite quickly. The hours are going by and the days are going by and the weeks and the months, and suddenly we'll find ourselves face to face with our maker. And the person who's by grace put their trust in Christ will hear those wonderful words, welcome, take your inheritance. And the person who's never done that will hear those terrible words, depart, I don't know you. During the week, I had an email from Brent and Polly, who are part of our morning congregation now in the UK and over to Spain, I think, for a while. And uh, part of the email, they said, we're you know, visiting our friends of um, years past. They're both English, Brent and Polly. They're back in the UK. They're visiting their old friends. And the absolute tragedy for them is to find that so many of their past Christian friends have given up the Christian life. What a sad, sad thing to turn up and meet people who you once fellowshiped with who've now said, that's all in the past. Ah, we're too sophisticated for that. And they've said goodbye to an unshakable kingdom. And they're just clutching onto stuff that's going to all go like powder. And the writer of Hebrews, you see, says, no, when you've put your faith in Christ, you've got unshakable privileges. Whatever you do, don't turn your back. On him. So the person who is struggling in the Christian life says to themselves every now and again, My sins are so constant. Is it really worth it? And the writer says, It's worth it. Throw away what stops you running. And then the person says, Yeah, but my circumstances are really terrible. I don't know what's going on. Nobody seems to be looking after anything or caring about me. And the writer says, Your father is absolutely in control, making sure that you go forward looking to him, trusting him. And then the person says, yes, but uh, 
Those sacrifices, they may be worth it and circumstances may be under control, but in the end, it's all just too unreal. You know, I just want to have something now. And the writer says you have access to the throne of God. You're spiritually raised. You've come to Mount Zion. You're no longer separated, but because of Jesus, you're now in fellowship with God. And then the person says, yeah, but it's getting very difficult. I still, I still really would like to have everything now. And the writer says, if you give up the kingdom for the creation, you lose everything. But if you hang on following the king as he hangs on to you, you'll gain everything. So here is the writer encouraging us in the Christian race not to turn back and not to give up. And he's given us some excellent reasons that all have to do with the faithfulness of God. Well, let's ask him to keep us going. Let's pray. Our Father, we, <clears throat> we give you our thanks for this chapter. We thank you for reminding us of the Lord Jesus enduring the cross, despising its shame, now seated at the right hand. Please help us to throw away those things which would destroy our faith. Help us to do that. We thank you that you lovingly regulate all our circumstances. Nothing slips your attention. We pray that you would help us in the very midst of many troubles to trust you, to look to you. We pray that you would save us from sulking or setting up our own barriers. We also thank you, our Father, that you have given to us in this part of your word the assurance of present blessings, access, fellowship, closeness. We pray that you would help us to walk closely with you. And finally, we thank you that you have set up a kingdom which will never be shaken and pray that you would help us to stand faithfully on the rock of Christ. And we pray that you would keep us, each one who's here this morning, Help us, those who are not in the race, into the race, and help those who are in the race, on in the race. We pray, Heavenly Father, that there would be nobody in this building who misses the privilege of following and arriving. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.